Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. The Underground Railroad was a network of secret routes and safe houses used by enslaved people with the aid of abolitionists to escape to free states and Canada prior to the passing of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the United States in 1865. In this episode, our guest is architect and historian Frank Gerard Godleski. Frank, whose career as an architect brought him to Italy, where he lived and worked for more than 20 years, always maintained a deep interest in the history of his hometown of Montclair, New Jersey, and more specifically, black history and the story of the Underground Railroad in that area. This interest was sparked in him early in life through a dear friend of the family, Dr. Evelyn Darrell, who was a clinical psychologist, scholar, and black historian who mentored Frank and inspired his passion for black history. Frank, who now lives back in northern New Jersey, will tell us about his quest to discover, share, and document the complicated and little-known stories about New Jersey's history with slavery and its Underground Railroad. I'd now like to welcome Frank to our show. Welcome, Frank. Well, thank you so much for having me, James. This is great. I've been looking forward to having you on our show because you have a really, really interesting topic to talk about today. But I'd like to start by asking you this question. Frank, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Montclair, New Jersey, at St. Vincent's Hospital on Washington Street. I grew up between Montclair, Rutherford, and Spring Lake, and I went to Montclair Academy and MKA. What about your family origins? Where did your family come from? Were they here in this country a long time? Did they come from Europe or where? Well, it's it's an interesting story because they're here for quite some time. My father's family came to Hoboken, and there were uh, some that were instrumental in Stevens Institute. They were scientists. And then there were uh, some from the clergy, and they founded Don Bosco Academy. And that point, it was in Newton. That's in the 1880s. And then uh, when they came, and then my mother's family is from Naples. They were uh, dissidents, so they sort of left when Italy became a unified country, and they were among the first 200 Italians to be in Newark. And, uh, you know, they were from the professional class and provided services for the incoming immigrants. So they were doctors and lawyers. And And where was your dad's family from? They're from Poland. They're like Polish-Prussian. A lot of boundaries changed and, you know, became different countries. I think where they're from today is now Austria. So what can you tell us about your childhood, Frank? This interesting background on both sides of your family, how did that affect you as a child? Well, it was very interesting, and I'm very grateful, of course, because uh, I, I come from a family of doers. You know, my mother was very involved in education and civil rights, and that, and my grandfather, her father, was an assistant judge in Newark, um, and uh, he, he worked for the juvenile courts, so he was very um, involved in helping troubled youth. And so, you know, my mother was in education and loved all children and would get involved in sort of betterment and encouraging them, you know, children from all backgrounds. And that that's sort of the environment I grew up with. She went to Barringer High, which was then a very, was a very good school. And her cousin, Peter Rodino, who was a congressman and he was actually the chair of the Watergate investigation. I remember that. Yeah, he was also very involved in civil rights. So I, I, I guess you could say I have a civil rights background, or it runs, you know, through my veins. It's running through your veins, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Frank, where did you go to school, and what, what's your educational background? I started at Montclair Academy when it was an old boys' school, and it was just wonderful. It really was. I'm so grateful that I I have that um, experience, and I was in the class. uh, You know, there were a few of us of our classes that 
underwent the transition when it merged with the Kimberly School. So it was very, it was very stimulating. I had a course at Montclair Academy given by uh, a teacher, John Noble, who was just such a mentor. And it was a Harlem Renaissance course. So we studied all about the, um, the writers of the Harlem Renaissance, and it was very motivating. And actually, uh, later on in my research, I researched uh, Langston Hughes, who came to Montclair to the Black YMCA, actually the Black YWCA, it was just such a thriving, uh, how would you say, uh, cultural moment. And I loved learning about that at Montclair Academy. Very nice. And we're going to pursue that in a minute. But I also wanted to ask you about your additional education that you had. I understand uh, you are an architect. Well, from Montclair Kimberly Academy, I went to Cooper Union. There was a gentleman, an artist from Montclair, Don Miller, who painted the Martin Luther King Freedom Mural. He went to Cooper Union, to the art school. So I studied uh, at Cooper Union with basically the best of the best. And uh, there I met Aldo Rossi, who was an Italian architect, and he asked me if I would come to work in his Milan studio. So I went there, and I, I always wanted to learn about Italy because my family, you know, my mother's family was from Naples. So I wound up staying for 24 years in Italy. It was wonderful. I did a PhD. I did a dottorato di ricerca in Venice. But then I wanted to know Naples. So I worked as a restoration architect in Italy after Aldo Rossi's studio and um, worked for you know my relatives who had um, sort of like a house museum. So I, I learned a lot. And in Venice, I worked for... Uh, a woman who was the first woman to rent her palace for weddings. So she said, I don't care what my sons do with the palace after I'm gone, but I want it to look exactly the same all the time. So she taught me everything, every trick in the book to just restore things. And I was there restoring Tiepolo ceilings so that, you know, the big restorers didn't get involved. So I, I had an amazing background, just experience. Wow. So you were immersed in the culture and the history. Yes. I, I had the privilege of, um, you know, working for my relatives and they had a, a villa that had damages during the earthquake and they, you know, rented it in the gardens and, and parts of the villa. And so I, I learned how to do restoration of murals and frescoes and things like that and gilded ceilings and it was fascinating so i got to stay in these beautiful places and be a house guest and and work with all the people that sort of had been doing that kind of work in the house all their lives oh, how fascinating yeah. wow now did any other members of your family come over to visit while you were over there oh every year yeah we spent summers in positano and uh, my relatives had a very famous uh, garden party every year. And so there would be hundreds of people. And there was the former royal family. Just had a wonderful time. I lived in Tuscany. And when you lived in the villa or the castle or the palace or whatever, uh, you had to do the same kind of social life as the owners. So that was just marvelous. And wow, that's terrific. So... Frank, while you were in Italy, did you ever miss your hometown of Montclair, New Jersey? I did, terribly. And since I was doing a doctorate in research, one of the most involved research projects I did was on Montclair while I was in Italy. So I kept, every time I came home, I came home a few times a year, and I would bring books back with me and photographs of houses and I would study them and you know I was learning how to do research so I was able to um, collect things you know collect documents and photographs and so black history was very interesting to me as well because when I would come home our very dear friend Dr. Evelyn Darrell was like a mentor to me and she provided me with a lot of cultural information and would take me on rides and show me uh, historic black houses. She would even take me to cemeteries and tell me 
who everyone was there. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a very important part of my education. She'd gone to Barringer High with my mother, and they were friends, you know, since then. And she became clinical psychologist and head of the children's outpatient clinic at Bellevue. Mm-hmm. And she and her daughter, her daughter and I grew up together, and she went to Kimberly, and unfortunately she passed away at 19 years old. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was horrible. And uh, Dr. Darrell imparted to me an education in black history the same that she would have uh, imparted to her daughter. Wow, what, a, what an honor to have her spend right. that time with you. A great honor, and I feel like I'm the caretaker of all of this information and this knowledge, and that's um, basically what I do, is keep it going. That is great. And, you know, what I really admire about you and people who take research seriously Mm -hmm. is that you're really doing the dirty work. You've got to really, you're not just Googling stuff and writing a few things down. You're doing the deep dives right well it's never ending and black history has always been denied its place its true place in american history you know with the information that i was given by dr darrell and the places i were was taken and the people who i met i felt um it was sort of like a a moral obligation you know to honor this valuable information and that's why it became a passion dr darrell and her daughter used to go to martha's vineyard with dr martin luther king and his family and other people so it was quite a moment in civil rights history my mother was involved and she was in a lot of these organizations with dr darrell so as a child i saw all of this and um it's really part of me so it not only was it something you were exposed to, but it also sparked a real interest in you as well. Yes, but it's sort of, I would call it like a social, it's like for social obligation Mm. that you do justice to this material, which is all about injustice. Mm. And while you're doing it, I mean, that's my motivation is to bring to light and make these facts known to people who are often quite shocked. They don't realize what the real reality is or was, especially with black history in New Jersey, because people never imagined that New Jersey was a slave state, but it was all founded upon the concept of uh, free slave labor. And uh, Lord Berkeley and Lord Carteret gave people who bought land grants from them 60 acres of free land for every slave they brought into new jersey interesting i believe there are a lot of people who don't really know about new jersey's history with regard to slavery and um, i i gotta admit i'm one of those people i always understood that New Jersey abolished slavery in the 1840s, and that was it. So by the time the Civil War rolled around, black people had been free for, you know, 15 years or so already. And I'm, I'm finding out that that's not really true. Can you tell us about that, Frank? Well, you have to understand that a lot of us were educated with books from publishing companies who sort of whitewashed over a lot of facts and made everything seem much rosier. So we were miseducated, and that's why a lot of people are so shocked today when they hear the truth about the data. Slavery in New Jersey wasn't really illegal or abolished until 1865 with the 13th Amendment, and it wasn't really abolished after that, you know, in a practical way. You know, maybe slavery was abolished, but they had to live under lifelong indentures where they were apprentices for the rest of their life, or they were told that they were. And there's some narrative that I've come across of uh, a man from Sea Caucus in the early 1900s that thought he was still a slave. Really? Really? Oh, yeah. Now, I often think about Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. 
I think it was January 1st, 1863, that when you really learn about that, that freed all the slaves in the Confederate states during the Civil War. But it wasn't really until the 13th Amendment of the Constitution that slavery was abolished in the United States. New Jersey was the last northern state to actually abolish slavery, even though, I mean, we say 1865, but that's not really true. It kept going because I think in, it was 1804, there were acts that would gradually emancipate people. But if you really look at the laws, the laws would just force them into being apprentices. So it was just slavery. There were so many laws against black people. They couldn't marry white people. They could not own land. If you were a free black person, you could not own land in New Jersey, possibly until 1964 with the, you know, there was covenants on deeds that would say, you know, no Negroes or something like that. So I would say that before 1964, that didn't really liberate people from being homeowners or property owners or business owners. You know, Montclair is a little different because it was um, more of an abolitionist community. There were very important people in Montclair, very important Crane family members, you know, the founders of Montclair, who were abolitionists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Montclair was a destination for black people who wanted to have businesses and own land. Okay. So a lot of these, when you talk about you know, rules about owning land and things like that, into the 1960s? That's when it became illegal in the United States to discriminate against race. Gotcha. Because that's the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. We started to see the, mm -hmm. the real push for civil rights and uh, Martin Luther King and some of the changes that were, were made during the 60s. So mm -hmm. really it was... In practice, there was still this discrimination that was preventing people, you know, people of color from owning land and being actually, they were being actually discriminated against. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, a deed covenant is legal. Mm. And if a deed of a property says that you cannot sell it to black people, that's the law. Gotcha. That's legislation. I've got you. I've got you. You know, it's shocking when you really read reports on the legal conventions that were so racist mm. until very recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, it's all very hidden, but they're there. And we had lawyers and judges enforcing this until very recently. Wow, that's absolutely incredible to hear that. Well, when I say recently, I say into my lifetime. Yeah. Mine as well. I mean, yeah. I, re I remember the civil rights era, the, mm -hmm. the 1960s. And mm -hmm. that's in my lifetime. And to think the types of discrimination that were, mm -hmm. were taking place, uh, commonplace almost. But what people really don't know was that there was a lot of black power. There was a lot of black money, even in the South. There were institutions founded by black people who understood that they could do a better job themselves. And a lot of things about black history have always been hidden and also the networks of black people that did things in the early 1900s late 1800s also is hidden as well because a lot of it you know they were going against laws against them mm -hmm. but they also had money to found universities like mary mcleod bethune mm -hmm. with her university and she actually stayed in montclair for a while to set that up with the Darden family. So there was a lot going on that we don't know about. So talking about New Jersey and its role in uh, slavery, there's something that is of interest of mine. New Jersey's role in what was called the Underground Railroad. Some people may have recently seen a movie called Harriet, which is about Harriet Tubman, who was very instrumental in the Underground Railroad. And I'd like to ask you if you could clarify 
for our listeners what the Underground Railroad really was. You can't think about it as a railroad. I mean, that, that's sort of a metaphor for it. Think about it as a network with points on the network that were safe for you to go from point A to point B. So if you were seeking freedom and running away from slavery, there was a network of people, and it could not be documented. It had to be completely secret. That's why it's very difficult to document today. If conventional historians are waiting to see documents to prove that it existed, then we're never going to find them. Let's talk a a bit about why the documents could not exist in the Underground Railroad. Well, because it was illegal. There were very severe punishments, you know, fatal punishments to black people who were fleeing slavery. They were basically uh, murdered and tortured in front of the other people. It was very cruel and... um, practically unimaginable and unspeakable. So um, there were very severe punishments and laws against abolitionists who were enabling people to flee slavery. Mm -hmm. There were big amounts of, there were bounties given to people who would turn in slaves so that they could be, you know, tortured and murdered in front of everyone else. Uh, That's why it was secret. That's why, it was a network. It was all about people who were, you know, uh, driven morally to do this. And that's talking about abolitionists, the, those people. Who were the abolitionists? I don't, I don't, I'm not looking for specific names of people right at this point, but who were these people who were putting their lives, their businesses uh, on the line? Well, A lot of people think that abolitionists were, I mean, or the Underground Railroad and all of this was uh, thanks to white people, and that's not true. Mm -hmm. It is, um, the black community is never given enough credit in documenting their history or the initiatives for freedom, and that's why the best information that we're able to obtain about the Underground Railroad comes from black sources. So abolitionists were black and white. Abolitionists were usually motivated by their religious beliefs. You know, unfortunately, slavery was only abolished for economic reasons because it was more convenient to hire uh, white indentured servants at that point because slavery was being abolished, but there were still laws against black people that did not permit them to live freely. They couldn't marry who they wanted. There were curfews. They couldn't meet. You know, if, if black people wanted to get together, it was illegal for them to be more than five people or 10 people. Mm. And then they had curfews. So it was too much trouble to hire black people that were free So they thought, oh, well, we could hire Europeans who want to become American and they can work for free for 10 years as indentured servants. Now, I heard you mention before that uh, in New Jersey, while technically slavery had been abolished, that black people were being held as indentured servants, in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. perhaps for the rest of their lives, now, to me, an indentured servant, as, as you had mentioned before, is somebody, somebody comes to a place and they, are, they will serve somebody until a certain amount of time at which they would earn the right to be free of that servitude. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I'm hearing is that for these black people, that they were never actually given that entire freedom, they were perpetually in servitude as a, quote, indentured servant, unquote. And they were called apprentices. Apprentices? Yes. Okay. And you had to work for, usually you were an apprentice for your former master. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how, how fun could that be? 
you're an apprentice. Usually, what I would think of an apprentice, somebody's learning a trade. Right. You right? were just forced to work mm-hmm. for somebody who basically owned you, and then it became illegal to own another human being. So uh, these people had no place to go. They had nobody to help them except for maybe the situation of staying on as an apprentice. But let's say if they had children that were free, a lot of these children were put in poor houses when they were babies so that the, you know, the uh, owner, the former owner didn't have to support them. Mm. You know, so it still disbanded and, you know, dispersed families mm. even after slavery was abolished. Wow. So the Underground Railroad, just from watching the movie Harriet and from doing some reading myself, uh, was, again, as you said, it was a network of people and routes, uh, logistics around getting slaves from a location where they were in danger or oppressed to another location where they would, in effect, be free. Right. Is that correct? Well, I mean, let's talk about New Jersey. New Jersey was a very, very, very busy with activity of people fleeing slavery. And you wanted to get to New York City and then off to Canada. So Philadelphia was important. And if we look at the map and what they've documented with underground railroad activity, let's say close to us, close to Montclair, there would be Booton and then Newark. So you were traveling from, you know, one point to another secretly. Basically, it was a network. It was a hidden secret network that you would travel. And from New Jersey, you would want to get to Hoboken, New Jersey City, and then cross the Hudson where you were free. Okay. So in when you say New York, so New York City, they were free at a point where in New Jersey, they still were not. Exactly. And don't forget that it was very dangerous because there were people who basically had the profession of looking for runaway slaves so that they could collect the money Mm. from the bounty. Right, and if you go back to the, I think it was around 1850 with the Fugitive Slave Act. Exactly. That, that was New Jersey. That was New Jersey. So it was one of those places where if a slave had uh, escaped from Maryland or Virginia uh, into a northern state, that they could be hunted down and returned to their owner, even though they were in a state that was technically a free state. It was very convoluted. It was, um, you know, there was a judge in East Brunswick who just kidnapped a whole, you know, maybe 20 black people. Some of them were babies. He just kidnapped them and sent them, sold them, sent them on a train back to the south. But they were free. Wow. And that was a judge, um, Van Wickle. You know, there were free black people in Jersey. There were black people in Jersey that were never slaves. Uh, There's stories that are amazing. The last slave in West Orange, there was a gentleman who very fortunately gave his narrative about what it was like to be a slave. Mm -hmm. This is in 1848, and um, his name was Thompson. He had to purchase his ailing mother, who was still a slave, so that he could take care of her for the rest of her life. You know, so New Jersey was <laughs> was a mess of wow, free people, slaves, uh, people that never wanted slavery to be abolished, people that were hunting people down. You know, they would be at toll booths. They were keeping black people from getting jobs in industry. So New Jersey was not a safe place. So when we talk about the Underground Railroad and we talk about New Jersey, we're talking about New Jersey wasn't the destination to be free. It was just part of the route that had to be traveled to find true safety. And that would be in New York. 
And then eventually in Canada, I guess after the Fugitive Slave Act, they had to get to Canada to truly be safe from being hunted down and returned. Oh, yes. Wow. So let's talk a little more about the actual route of the Underground Railroad in New Jersey. And what do you know or what do we know about these sites? Well, of course, it's not documented and I became very fascinated in researching actual physical places that were safe houses. Mm-hmm. And um, I had located about 11 in Montclair and in the area that people would just tell me about. So I wanted to put together a report, and I had the honor of, of speaking with Giles Wright, who was the foremost historian. His mother was as well. He's the foremost historian in the Underground Railroad. I think he passed away in 2009. Mm -hmm. And he met with me, and he was very reluctant to uh, welcome me because he said, you have to understand that it's very fashionable for people to want to make the claim that their town was involved in the Underground Railroad. And so he didn't give a lot of designations uh, to places as being part of the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. And he knew that. But I would say in my experience, when I see a safe room or a safe house, and I actually feel it, and I actually listen to the people tell me about it, that's when I know that it's part of a network. It's part of this freedom network. And that's what I'm basically very interested in, is sort of discovering... You know, even though Giles Wright, justly so, says, you know, a lot of people want to make it fashionable and say that their town is part of it. But for me, it's just another thing. I give a lot, I give most of the credit to the black community and to black people that work on their own family research, Mm. because that's where the real stories come out. Oh, I bet. I bet. Now, when you say safe houses, uh, are these the places where somebody is willing to take in these slaves who have escaped and are able to stay there for a certain amount of time until they move to their next point in the railroad? Well, the Underground Railroad is a network of points, of dots. The dots are connected by, you know, you connect the dots to find your way to freedom. Right. And... um the people who are running this, I mean, it's mainly black churches. And, you know, there are, you know, uh, abolitionists like uh, Llewellyn Park in West Orange was an abolitionist community. But some of the landowners were black back in the 1800s mm-hmm. as well. Uh, the Howe family from Montclair, they were black. Uh, to me, they were basically the strongest components of our local underground railroad so uh you know there were transport companies on the mars canal that were owned by free black people who you know would accept people on their boats to take them from bloomfield to uh jersey city that's interesting just to stop for a moment the mars canal for our listeners mars canal was built in the 18 20s, I think 1824 it was completed, and it went from Phillipsburg, New Jersey, right on the Delaware River, all the way to Newark and Jersey City. And basically this was a a man-dug canal, and on the canal boats would transport often goods, coal from northeast Pennsylvania, different types of uh, materials, maybe food, things like that. So it was a probably a good place to be able to bring people up through the Delaware and then to cross through New Jersey into eventually New York, right? Mm-hmm. From what I know of the Morris Canal. So that was something back at that time that would have been a, a good way to probably sneak people through New Jersey. It's true. You'd have to dodge a lot of locations. Like, it was very unsafe to go near to uh, Patterson. Okay. Even though, you know, there was underground railroad activity in Patterson, but you were trying to 
stay away from militia groups like the Copperheads who were trying to find black people escaping so that they could keep them out of, um, you know, getting jobs in, in the industries and collecting bounties for finding people. Mm-hmm. And Booton was uh, a very important location. A lot of locations were churches, um, businesses, but of course it's all undocumented. So how would, if it's undocumented, is it more oral history that was passed down, or how would you, how would you know actually that? Well, there's places- something called the Wellman scale. The Wellman scale and historical documentation is um, narrative, mm-hmm. and it's like one to ten. So if you have three people, three disparate people that don't know each other who tell the same story, mm-hmm. that's like three on the on the Wellman scale. You know, and then there's, um, for example, in the Afro-American History and Genealogical Society, an organization which is very, very valuable, very important in collecting black history mm-hmm. and correcting black history. A lot of people are just going through their own family narratives and discovering relatives they never knew they had who can tell the other part of their story. And it's all very emotional. See, that's what black history, academic black history doesn't really do justice to black history because it it sort of uh, denies the community of the psychological aspect and the emotional aspect, which is very important. I mean, I've seen historians that I work with just, you know, find information about their great-grandmother who was a slave and everything she went through and her owners and how she was mistreated and how she was, you know, whatever. It's so emotional. Sure, sure. You know, and to think you live in your beautiful, you know, center hall colonial house in in New Jersey and, you know, your kids go to Princeton or whatever. And to think that, you know, your your great-great-grandmother was a slave who was owned by somebody. Owned. It's so hard to fathom. And then found her way to freedom. Yes. You know, it takes a lot of strength. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So some of these places in New Jersey that have been pinpointed, actually, I, we live in north, northeastern New Jersey, and there are some places very close to us in the Montclair area, Montclair, New Jersey area, that uh, were part of that Underground Railroad and actually Bloomfield area. Yes. Can you just tell us about maybe a couple of sites that have been pretty well, I should say, documented I th- in your research? Okay. Have, they're, have they're, high degree of credibility. They're not documented, unfortunately. Uh, I'm going to say high degree of credibility uh-huh. as... Uh, underground railroad sites in the Essex County, New Jersey area. Right. Well, you know, as I said, it's a network, and you're going from one place to another that's safe for you and hidden, that nobody's going to find out about it. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to believe that our DeCamp bus company, that was originally a stagecoach company, were helping people find freedom mm. because there are tunnels from the stagecoach house in Montclair that go over to the James Howe house. Now, James Howe was a manumitted slave. He was blind when the Crane family in 1836, just think how early that is. Yeah. He was a landowner in Montclair in 1836, and from underneath his house, there was a tunnel that went out of town up, you know, to the top of the mountain, under the toll booth of Bloomfield Avenue that surfaced at the Annan Flag Factory. And we know that this exists. Unfortunately, it's been covered up. I passed it twice a day when I was a child going to Montclair Academy. You could actually see the opening. Really? Yeah. They said it was a test bore for a train line going to Bhutan. Mm. And it had hit a vein of water at the mountaintop. So Tony's brook sort of came gushing out of that and fed back into Tony's brook. But to give you an example, 
you could enter Montclair, which is basically a safe house situation. And there were a lot of safe houses in Montclair because I, I've seen 11 of them. So from the Annan Flag Factory, you would go under through this tunnel. You'd surface on uh, Upper Mountain Avenue. And then you'd walk down the brook to the Crane Homestead. That was all originally one big property. Mm-hmm. The Crane Homestead has been demolished, but we know that there's a tunnel that goes from there down to Bloomfield to the Davis Homestead, another abolitionist family. Uh, deacon Davis, he was the deacon of the church, the Presbyterian Church on the Green. Mm-hmm. In fact, he gave the land to the town for the green. His house is now the Bloomfield Steakhouse. It was that famous tea room, the Franklin Tea Room. Yes. That, um, in fact, if you go there, you can read in the menu that there's a tunnel that went from there up to Montclair. And so that tunnel was very strategic. That location going down to Bloomfield was very strategic because you would then be on a property that was on the Mars Canal. And other properties that I know were safe houses in Bloomfield were on brooks and streams where you could walk very easily undiscovered during the night down to the Mars Canal. Oh, that makes sense. With the idea being that they were going to get these folks to New York. Yes. Ultimately, New York. And New York's slave laws uh, were, uh, or shall we say, in New York, slavery was abolished quite a bit before New Jersey. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Yes. And enforced. (laughs) And enforced. Okay. Uh, Okay. So now that's a big, that's a big key thing there is the, what laws were on the books versus what laws were actually enforced. Right. Right. I mean, because it was illegal in New Jersey at a certain point with gradual emancipation, but then in 1850 you had the Fugitive Slave Act, sending people running away from slavery back to where they were coming from. Yeah, exactly. But in New York, in New York, though, they, they still were required through the Federal Fugitive Slave Act to give up slaves that were apprehended in new york as well as new jersey right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but with regard to other laws or practices new york wasn't as loosey-goosey with apprenticeships and things that were really slavery masked in some other kind of language well don't forget that even if there were laws that would gradually emancipate people from slavery the same lawmakers who were supposed to enforce those laws and legislation a few years before that were enforcing laws about slavery. True. So they had that kind of mindset. Yeah. And they could basically do whatever they wanted who was looking at what they were doing. Understood. Understood. That makes sense. Now, you had mentioned about the how house. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, the James Howe House is the oldest house in Montclair. It was, uh, the original structure was built in the 1600s, and it's on the old road, which is now called Claremont Avenue. So it was a road that's been there, was probably a Lene Lenape trail mm-hmm. that was turned into a road. It went up to the top of the mountain. It was used during the American Revolution, And um, when Major Nathaniel Crane passed away, his will of 1836 bequeathed this property to James Howe. He also manumitted him in the same will, which means he uh, freed him from slavery. Mm -hmm. He was an older gentleman who was blind, and he had a son and a daughter. And this is where you had the tunnel, Further along in time, there are houses that owned farms and actually uh, were attorneys and were amongst the founders of uh, Llewellyn Park that was, a, it was called a, an illuminated community. 
of like-minded individuals. They were Swedenborgists, but also abolitionists, a lot of them. So the Howe Farm, which today we see a fragment of that, it's called Howe Street in Montclair. That was the driveway of the farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rest of it was sold to Llewellyn Park. And then it was sold to make workers' housing for the Edison's laboratories. So the Freed Slave House, the James Howe House is also called the Freed Slave House. It was very unfortunate that, you know, we have historical societies that, you know, do what they want to do and they feel they can rewrite history. They were going to take that house, move it to behind the house of its former master and interpret it as a slave house. That's when I got very involved in putting a stop to that. Okay, so it's the freed slave house. Yes, that is the significance, the historical significance of that property. That's very critical because that house was given to him at the same time he was manumitted. Yes, it raises the question if he was a biological relative of the Crane family because he inherited, not only did he inherit this five-acre property on Upper Mountain Avenue in Montclair mm-hmm. in 1836, so he's the first black homeowner in Montclair, but he also inherited a mill in Caldwell. Oh. And he also inherited a ferry boat business in the Meadowlands. So to me, this is a story unfolding about a freedom route a freedom route absolutely so the house the actual breed slave house yes does this house exist today oh yes it's there thank god uh it has a very interesting history james howe had two children a son and a daughter the son all we see in documents is that he was always very aligned and did business with very prominent white people. Mm-hmm. And then James Howe's daughter became an Oliver. So her line goes into the Oliver family. And in 1900, a descendant, Mr. Oliver, who lived in the James Howe house, the freed slave house, who owned the five-acre property, sold the corner to the Welsh Wigan family, who were a prominent local family, and they built a neoclassical mansion It's a very interesting story because, you know, here you have an African-American homeowner Mm -hmm. sell the property to, you know, sell a corner of the property to a prominent white family. Very fortunately, Mrs. Blanton Welsh was so interested in the history of the freed slave James Howe and his family that she restored the house for the family and did very, very uh, copious research about their origins. So we're lucky to have that today. The house is still standing. The rest of the property was sold to the Studer family for their estate. So then, you know, we have this historical society who moved the Crane House, which had become the Black YWCA, and it was in a black neighborhood. So they plucked it up in 1968, I remember that, took it off its foundations and moved it to Orange Road to a white neighborhood and made it into this very sort of colonial historical society, completely, you know, denying the house of its most significant history, and that was the black history, although today they're trying to do that. You know, they're trying to make that a feature and story of the Crane House. So the Crane House that exists now is not on... Its original location. No. Okay. And the freed slave house, tell me, that house, and I actually, I must admit, I do know the house exists because I've passed it uh, quite a few times, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to just validate that with you, that that is indeed the freed slave house because there's no real indication from the road that it is a house of any historical significance. Uh, So I did want to ask you about that, but... Also, is the house that's on Claremont Avenue, was that house just a a building originally that was on the estate of the Cranes? Yes, that was on the estate of the Cranes, and it was surrounded by other small houses. One of them was uh, Major Nathaniel Crane's house, Mm -hmm. 
and the historical society took that too and moved it to behind the Israel Crane House in Orange Road, and they made it into a guest shop. And so that's where they got the idea to take the freed slave house and move it behind the former master's house and call it a slave house. Oh, I see. So the freed slave house is now somewhat of a, a distance away from the crane house. Oh, it's in its original location, and yeah. that's what it's so significant mm-hmm. about its history is that, you know, it was a five-acre tract, and it was part of Nathaniel Crane's best land on his family's property. Mm. And he gave it to James Howe, and in the will it says that it would be owned by Mr. Howe and his descendants all the way down the line. So he made the deed completely bulletproof. Yeah. So it couldn't be taken away from James Howe. Very interesting. So do we have any idea how old the Howe house is? There's a document from sort of like a New York Times. I don't know what it was called at that point. But uh, it documents the house as being from the 1600s. It's funny. It was the first sort of evidence of building codes in our area because there were microbursts of uh, tornadoes that uh, destroyed a lot of the farmhouses in Montclair in the early 1700s. So from that point on, they, they had to enforce sort of like building regulations so that they would be sturdy enough. Mm-hmm. So that is documented in this. So the house is roughly the same age as the crane homestead. That's been demolished. That's probably from the 1600s as well. It was a brownstone house. So it was roughly the same age as the original. Could have been, yes. Owner's house. Yes. Gotcha. Frank, is that freed slave house landmarked now? Well, when the Historical Society wanted to move it, I had tried to purchase with my mother the house on the corner when it was for sale, but a developer wanted to knock it down and build townhouses there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't buy the house because it had this big lawsuit, and it took five years to resolve itself. So then the Historical Society, when I went to them, I said, please try to do something about the James Howe house. And they went to the developer and sort of made a deal, said, we'll take the house so that you could build on the land. So uh, there were a lot of people that were like-minded to me that that was incorrect. So we went to every planning board and zoning board meeting imaginable for over a year. Mm -hmm. And they did not permit the demolition permits of the two buildings Mm. and landmark them locally. Okay. But it's still not landmarked on a state level. We're working on that. Yeah, I think that's probably important to make sure we keep, you know, those buildings safe. Fortunately, the owner have always taken very good care of the house. So it's always been private and very well taken care of. Do you think there's ever going to be a day when... Perhaps uh, it will turn into a museum where people can go and visit and also learn more about its history. Well, I tried to do that. And, you know, today with the pandemic, a lot of museum practices have evolved into something else where Mm -hmm. it's a virtual exhibit that's seen online. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the board of the Grover Cleveland birthplace, and we're going to do all of our exhibitions from now on like that, although we have the the fortune of being able to have physical on-site exhibitions, I think that as a curator, I would like to have everything on a database so it could be shared with people all over the world. I do think that there's enough interest today in the community in Montclair. We're trying to put a plaque up. Yes. But for now, at least it's landmarked and it's not going anywhere. Well, that's good. That's good. It'd be nice to get it maybe to a point where it could get funding from either the state or mm-hmm. the federal government to 
ensure that structurally it stays in good shape? Well, I mean, as an architect and a curator, I always think that any historic property, any landmark has to be self-sustaining. You can't really rely on the government. You can rely on a community who's interested, but you can't really rely on laws and the government to give money. You have to find a very creative, very intelligent way to make it pay for itself. Gotcha. Yeah, and if if you have virtual tours, it's a little harder, isn't it, to raise money that way than it would be to have people actually to have a little museum on the property and have no. people tour the house or something like that. Well, the house is very small and fragile. Yeah. But I think that its history is so grand. Yeah, it is. And so long and big and important that it merits to have a whole collection of data behind it. Yeah. And there are foundations and public institutions that could give grants. I know you've been working hard to bring some notoriety as well as some a plaque to be put on That's the in building. The in the making. Yes. So we'll keep posted on that situation. And let's hope that, uh, that people can become more aware of the significance of that building in the community and specifically with black history and the underground railroad mm-hmm. that came through northern New Jersey, northeastern New Jersey, which is where I live. So, Frank, you've taken such a deep interest in researching black history, buildings, properties, uh, just general stories about the Underground Railroad. Are there any other projects that you're working on now, uh, whether it be writing or research, things like that? Well, in terms of research, there's two very important organizations that I believe are the most important. One I mentioned before, and that's the Afro-American History and Genealogical Society. And I've been doing research thanks to them because it's a network of people that get together to do research. Okay. And then another very important organization is called the Sons and Daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage. And that has to do with slavery and families that were enslaved that are piecing together their true histories. Mm -hmm. So I'm very involved with listening to everything that they are putting together, all of the histories that they're collecting through people in the community. And what I'm working on, and it's sort of like a lifelong endeavor, is... um, the story of slavery in the Meadowlands and the fact that the Meadowlands was 5,500 acres of forest and, you know, cedar swamps that were burned down in 1791 because it became an outpost for pirates and privateers who were stealing slave ships and, you know, selling slaves in the northern New Jersey area where all the land was basically subdivided into plantations. So they were very active until it said that the sheriffs were ordered to burn it down, and a lot of the pirates died. Sixty were captured and hanged on the site. You couldn't really process pirates anymore because they were so violent. There was a case where they were going to try pirates in a court in um, Middletown near Parathamboy, and they murdered everybody. (laughs) Really? Yes. So, I mean, I I shouldn't laugh, but um, so that's the story that I want to bring to light about the slave trading pirates of the Meadowlands. Wow, that's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to reading that book, Frank. Well, thank you. So please let me know when you're ready to publish it because it sounds to me like it's going to bring to light a lot of things that people probably don't know about. I certainly did not know about pirates in the Meadowlands. People are shocked. They have no idea. They have no idea that the Meadowlands was a cedar forest. No, we look at it as like swamps. That's because it's a dead landscape. Yeah. You know, they burn down the trees. You can still see the tree stumps at low tide. Really? You know, then they built a big dam at High Point, 
you know, in the Ramapo Hills. Yeah, yeah. So the fresh water was cut off. The trees were burned down, and then the seawater kept seeping in. So that's what our meadowlands is today. It's just sort of this wasteland of, you know, it's coming back, but I think it's fascinating to tell the story. Well, it's going to be a big endeavor because, as you said, there's a lot of uh, things that were not documented, and you're going to have to really scratch well below the the surface to get your information so i wish you the best on that well, thank you thank you fortunately there is chronicle you know like the underground railroad research you have to connect the dots connecting the dots definitely frank are you aware of any organizations you've mentioned a couple already where people can do some research do you know of any other organizations that promote black history awareness and provide resources for research? Oh, yes. One of the best in the United States is Rutgers University in New Jersey. The Clement Price Institute of the American Experience. Mm-hmm. It's all about black history. That's, I think, rated number one in the country. And then you have Princeton and you have Harvard and other universities that are highly rated. But I would say the best is the Afro-American History and Genealogical Society, as well as the sons and daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage. The ones you had mentioned before. I believe they're the most authentic. Well, good. I know that uh, there's probably going to be people listening to this podcast who will be interested in maybe doing some more research themselves on this very, very important and interesting topic. So, Frank, how has studying black history and specifically the Underground Railroad in New Jersey impacted you? Well, I feel very privileged to have knowledge about the subject and It's very important. Um, There's the dynamic of correcting history because, you know, I learned uh, biased history. We all did. It's the way we were taught. I feel grateful to have this knowledge, but I want to continue doing this work, and I, I feel like a caretaker of this knowledge. It's very precious. It doesn't belong to me. It's um, American history that needs to be brought to light and a lot of history that needs to be corrected. And would you think that Dr. Darrell would be happy with you right now with some of the work that you've been doing? Well, I, I think that, you know, when, when she was alive, she would always um, keep, you know, filling me with more uh, information and be pleased in a way, and so would Michelle, but they would she would also remind me that you're not finished, you know, you're just at the beginning, keep going. There's more to do. So I hope that there's, you know, younger generations that'll keep going. Yes, definitely. Frank, you've got this fascinating history of architecture. You lived in Italy. Uh, You've got this uh, deep-rooted interest in your community of Montclair and the area of Montclair and Black history, history in general. You mentioned you're on the board of the Grover Cleveland Birthplace Association. You've got your fingers in a lot of different things. And I was wondering, what do you want your legacy to be? I just want to be one of these dots that people are going to connect. You know, one of these dots that were like a safe house or a a valuable point of information that can be connected to other dots. That's it's very clear to me, actually, when you say that, because, as you said, there's a lot of information that's not documented. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, as you mentioned before, with specifically with regard to the Underground Railroad, they couldn't document it because it would uh, really be evidence to be used to punish, imprison, or execute people. Oh, absolutely. Uh, both slaves fleeing from their owners and those assisting them, both black and white, who could be equally I always think of um, Frederick Douglass. Yes. Who is this brilliant young man, and he was a slave, and the wife of his owner recognized how intelligent he was, 
And she took the initiative to teach him how to read and write. But she didn't realize that she was breaking the law when she did that. Unfortunately, she didn't get caught. But just think, just think. Well, that's a great thought for us to end with. And Frank, you've been an amazing guest. I want to thank you for your time. Thank Uh, you. You're an interesting guy. And I hope to be interviewing you about your book that you're going to write. Thank you. I'm very excited about the book, and I I hope to be able to uh, tell you about it very soon. Well, thanks again. And Frank, I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You as well. And thank you very much for having me. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.